Let's open up our time listening to God's word by praying together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we bow before you this morning. and We rejoice in the way that we've been able to, to freely sing songs that recall to our minds the, the, the deed that our Savior, your Son Jesus, did to save us, that he, uh, he gave his life on the cross to, to wash our sins, to cleanse us and uh, and restore us to you, Lord. We, we come to you this morning and we come to your word uh, with expectant hearts. We expect to, to hear from you as we, as we listen to the words that you have said and the words that you have for us today. And I pray that, uh, that you give each one of us uh, a softened heart and, and an ability to, to really listen to what you have said. I pray that you help me to stay out of the way and to, to make what you have said clear. Uh, and that we will, we will hear from you, and you will accomplish your will in us. Uh, Lord, we, we look for you to, to do that in us by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unless you have spent the last ten years living under a rock, it is possible there's an outside chance that you may have caught a glimpse of a certain nostalgic poster with a certain image of the British royal crown up at the top and, uh, and a certain catchy slogan underneath that crown. And the original poster had a plain red background and simple all-caps font that simply read, Keep Calm and Carry On. And the very fact that it's necessary to, to be really specific about what the original poster looked like uh, is because the, this whole thing got just a tiny bit popular, maybe five or six years ago, uh, and saw an absolutely uncountable number of, of copies and parodies, you know, advertising, t-shirts, coffee mugs, uh, dental floss, you name it. The slogan was just plastered all over everything. And in the process, the slogan has been adapted and tweaked so many times that most of us, myself included, probably only had a hunch that keep calm and carry on were the original words. There's so many different versions out there. It's just, well, it seems like that one shows up often enough. That was probably the original, uh, but I didn't know for sure. And I know if the pastor has figured out that something is a thing, it's probably already over and done, and it's not a thing anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm fully aware that this craze wore itself out a long time ago, <laughs> and I apologize if I'm annoying you um, or making you angry just by bringing it up again today, but... The reason I bring it up is because the origins of the poster have some fascinating history behind it. Uh, The poster was originally designed by the Ministry of Information, so it was uh, part of the British Empire's information and really propaganda efforts during the Second World War. The poster was designed and printed during the early part of the war when Hitler's armies were sweeping across Europe and actually threatening to cross the Channel and invade Britain itself. And even though the nation was blitz-bombed from the air, this iconic keep calm and carry on poster never actually got put up during the war. Uh, They didn't get put up because they were being saved for the event, uh, just in case things actually got worse. In the event of an actual full-scale German invasion and occupation of the island, that's what the posters were for. That's when they were going to go up if that happened. Can you imagine that? You know, to have suffered defeat and to be occupied by enemy forces, and then that familiar poster would have shown up with that simple phrase, keep calm and carry on. 
At a time when things could not conceivably have gotten any more dire, there's this cheerful reminder from your government, don't panic, don't give up, and do what you can. And I'm not even going to touch the question uh, of whether or not that poster would have helped uh, if that had happened and, and it had gone up. Uh, that's, that's beyond my, my wisdom. But can you even imagine the strong-willed determination it would take to write that poster with that in mind? To, uh, to even consider saying those words at a time when it had appeared as if all was lost? Because for most of my generation, it's, it's a joke to just be repeated and be had. Most of us can't possibly read and hear those words the way they would have originally been intended in, in that situation. We don't have the, the experience or the scope for that. And it's a, really, it's a curious historical oddity that uh, since the German invasion of Britain never actually occurred, the posters were never dispersed as part of that war. So no one remembers them from the war itself. Uh, absolutely no one in the public knew about them until the year 2000 when a bookstore found an old, decrepit copy, just stumbled upon it, and put it up in the window. And everyone liked it, so they printed a few copies and sold a few more. And then it, it just exploded and reached the point where now most of us have chuckled at a black and yellow version with a bat signal at the top that says, keep calm and call Batman which is just ridiculous when you think about what it really meant in the first place. It's, it's, it's ridiculous when you think what those words were supposed to mean. Keep calm and carry on, even when it seems like the absolute worst and darkest hour has come upon us. Now, as Canadian Christians in the year 2018, it's not hard to imagine some of the ways that living as Christ's servants might conceivably get harder in the days ahead. You know, being salt and light in a world that is dark and dying is never an easy task. Never. And there are challenges now. There's the potential threat that some of the challenges might get bigger and harder in the days to come. And how do we keep calm and carry on in the face of deepening darkness? How do we stand firm when it feels like the very ground beneath our feet keeps shifting and is uncertain? Well, this morning we come to a portion of Paul's second letter to Timothy that was written out of Paul's personal darkest hour. The conditions of his arrest and persecution and possible execution had worsened. Many of his friends and partners have abandoned him, yet he writes to his beloved child in the faith, Timothy, to encourage him. He says, don't be ashamed of this struggle, because I'm not. He says, join me in suffering for the gospel because it's worth it. The power of God that saved me has worked through me in every situation, and the one who has kept me is also able to keep you. Guard the gospel, Timothy. Stand firm in the glorious calling you have in Jesus Christ. Be courageous. If you haven't turned there already, I'd encourage you to turn now in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy uh, 2 Timothy is a short letter. It's very near the end of the Bible, near the end of the New Testament. If you see Hebrews, just turn, uh, turn left a few pages. If you're using the black Bibles underneath the chairs, it'll be page 995. 995 in those black Bibles. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 8 down to the end of the chapter. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, 
but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. In order for us to benefit from this, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that there are legitimate temptations that we face to be ashamed of the gospel. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we could never fail where others have failed before. It's pride that goes before a fall. Is this good? Okay. Just give me a little signal if you want me to switch. Okay. When Paul writes to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, And he writes this because Paul finds himself in a shameful situation. Uh, First of all, from the outside looking in, Christianity always looks weak to the outside world. Uh, Jesus taught, blessed are the merciful. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Christians worship a God who voluntarily emptied himself of his privileges, took the form of a servant, suffered and died, and then called his followers to do the same thing. To a watching world, a world that's all about demonstrating competence and strength uh, and, 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 and accomplishment, humility often has the appearance of weakness, though it is not weak. Paul's message of faith in Christ was often mocked by the dying men that he preached it to. On top of that, Paul has been accused and possibly wrongfully convicted of certain crimes. We don't know for sure, but probably charges of treason, Uh, of undermining Roman authorities, uh, being a menace to public good by either those who have misunderstood his message or maybe by those who have understood his message exactly and who are working to, uh, to undermine it and bring about his downfall. But the world outside the church would have been working with the assumption that Paul was fully guilty, that he deserved to be in prison, in the dungeon, that he deserved his fate. And even inside the professing church, there were many who mocked Paul's situation They mocked his weakness, and they assumed that perhaps this meant God's favor was not upon him after all. 
The Apostle Paul was a, a pillar of the church, right? Want me to switch? Okay, good. Um, you know, all 12 of the other, other original apostles, Peter and James and John and everyone else, they all basically covered Jerusalem. They looked after the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and then Paul's plan, or God's plan for Paul and all of Paul's associates was to just cover, you know, the rest of the known world. Uh, so Paul was a pretty big part of Christianity's spread. He, he wrote most of our New Testaments. Uh, most people, uh, there were countless people that he planted their churches and he, he started their communities. So they all looked to him and there would have been fear. There would have been fear. What's going to happen if the church loses Paul? And so Paul writes to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed about the testimony about Jesus, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul wanted Timothy to remember that above all else, he was first and foremost a prisoner of Jesus himself. Before he was a prisoner of the Roman authorities, he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ himself. And Paul was perfectly content wherever Jesus should see fit to place him. But Paul was in a position that was legitimately shameful in the world's eyes. It was not pleasant. He was in a dungeon. He was despised. And we need to remember that just as there are many who turned away from him at that time, there is a legitimate temptation for us today to shy away from living fully for the gospel because of shame, because of felt shame. Look down at the end of the chapter with me, verses 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. All in Asia turned away from me. There's almost certainly a bit of hyperbole going on here. There's some intentional exaggeration. But still, it feels to Paul like everyone, every Christian in Asia, has turned his back on him in his time of need. It may be there's a certain class of Roman citizen who had the, the option and the ability to, to go to court uh, when he was accused and maybe uh, stand, you know, stand beside him and vouch for his, his character. Uh, but instead of suffering shame on their reputations, they decided to hang back and, and not do so. We know at least two of these people's names, Phygelus and Hermogenes, if I'm even saying that right. And I just want to say, take a moment here and pause and be thankful that when God chose his apostles, he got guys with names like Peter, John, James... Paul, so that we don't have to say these names more often than just this one time here in 2 Timothy. I know I'm thankful for that fact. That might have been for our sake, actually. Um, But the point is that the risk of being associated with the shame had caused many to shrink back and shrink away. Paul's warning to Timothy is to not be like that. And for you and I today, to not be like that, but instead to be like the slightly better named Onesiphorus. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Onesiphorus embraced the shame of being associated with Paul's disgrace. You could not just quietly and anonymously have contact with a prisoner in a Roman dungeon. Uh, By this point, Paul's imprisonment was not like his glorified house arrest earlier on in his career. Uh, Paul was in a dungeon, awaiting possible execution. Onesiphorus had to show his face around 
and ask where Paul was. People would know. People would associate him, but he didn't care. He embraced that shame. He refreshed Paul when Paul needed him the most. The challenge of shame and stigma is there for you and I today. What happens when someone in school, who you know is a Christian, is picked on for being different? What's what's your response? What happens when a co-worker speaks a word for truth and everyone just kind of clams up and backs away so they're not going to get caught in the consequences and the crossfire? What happens when social pressure and maybe future legal shifts make it costly to be a Christian in Canada? What happens if church members and preachers start getting jail time for preaching the gospel, if the gospel gets outlawed in our country? It's not entirely unthinkable. Would you embrace the shame and stand by them? Or look for an easier path? And what about Christians who suffer around the world today for their faith? Today, how do we reach out to them? How do we, as, as this man Onesiphorus did for Paul, how do we refresh them and care for them and share in what they're going through? Do we even think about them? Or do we just, just tell them things will be okay and, and pray for them, but in a way that keeps us safe and costs us nothing? Remember, Christ said, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done for me. Look back at verse 8 in the text. Do not be ashamed of the gospel or of me, Paul writes to Timothy, and just stop and consider now, what is the opposite of ashamed? What's the opposite of being ashamed of something? You would be proud of something, right? You would be proud of it. Paul might have written, don't be ashamed of me, Timothy, but be proud of me for I am suffering this for Christ's sake. But that's not what he writes. What comes next in the verse is, but share in suffering. Don't be ashamed of this, but share in this with me. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in it. Then Paul launches off on this beautiful reminder that comes next. It just, every time he starts talking about what God has done for us in Christ, it just kind of gurgles out in this long sentence that you can't restrain the praise. He is so excited about it. Uh, so far from being ashamed of it, he starts talking about what, what God has actually done. And let's, let's just read verses 9 to 12. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God. We'll, turn, we'll return to that phrase later. Share in suffering for the gospel because the gospel is worth it. There's nothing else like it. We're just going to use Paul's, the, the shape of, of Paul's praise for the gospel here to remind ourselves just how unique and glorious and good the good news really is. The gospel was worth it The gospel was worth it to God, verse 9. Before the ages began, before creation, before time itself, God knew. He knew what it was going to take to redeem sinful humanity. God already knew the end of the story. He knew about the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He knew about the consequences. He knew about wars and slavery and abuse and suffering. He knew that even though many would reject his offer of salvation, even so, he would still make that offer. God knew that the kind of redemption that was necessary would take into account the brokenness and the suffering and the stubbornness of the sinful human heart. And he chose to act not on the basis of what our works deserved, but he chose to act on the basis of his character and his love towards us. When I was young, I lived in a, in a family with kind of some clearly drawn tension and fault lines. It was a step family, so it was me, brother, and dad, and then stepmom, stepbrother, stepsister. Uh, us and them, always, kind of. Uh, it wasn't all bad, but it was hard on my father and my stepmother because there was this tension that always came from the parenting task. You know, whose kid caused the trouble this time? Who did it? Uh, that was usually the issue. There were always tense conversations going on behind closed doors, like the kind where you can't make out the words, but you can just tell from the tone and the muffled sounds that you hear that there's something not pleasant going on there. And every time those voices were going at it behind the closed door, I would always be left wondering, is it me this time? Is it some, some secret thing that I did wrong that someone's figured out that has, that has caused that problem and that tension? And uh, even though it wasn't me all the time, it was me sometimes, I was always fearful. It didn't matter if I'd even known something I had done wrong. It was, I was fearful that I was the cause, uh, that some secret mistake I'd made was the problem. And to this day, whenever I hear a conversation that I can't quite make out, you know, behind a closed door, I still wonder, is it me? Am I the problem? Is, is, did I cause that? And in some way, I think that's what happens to the way many of us regard our relationship with God. We feel guilt because of our sins, and we fear that we'll be caught by God and punished. Our relationship with God becomes based on the fear that he must always be displeased with us. And we look to things like religion in order to atone for our mistakes and earn God's approval. Or we look for other things, other things to just numb the feeling of guilt and forget about God altogether. Because our sin twists our understanding of a good God and teaches us to think of him as essentially against us. And this is what makes the gospel so unique and precious. Because it's not like those religious routines to earn God's favor. And it's not like those dark sinful lifestyles that just run away from God. The core message of the gospel is that God is for you. God is against your sin. Yes, he is but he is for you. The God who saved us and called us to a holy calling did so not because of our works and what our works would deserve, but because of his own purpose and grace towards us. The gospel is worth suffering for because it is the only thing that contains that message from God himself, that he is for you. The gospel was also worth it for Jesus Christ himself. In verse 9, we get that glimpse of God's mind in eternity past before creation, uh, his intentions towards us. It's almost too big for us to understand, but we know what's there. And then in verse 10, God's love and character and intentions burst into history. They show up in the person, person of Jesus. This has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
God's redemptive and sacrificial and good intentions towards us are made known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' coming, when he became a human being like us, only without sin. Through his teaching, when he revealed God's grace and truth to us. Through his dying, his blood that made atonement for our guilt. And through his resurrection, which signaled God's victory over sin and death and gave the hope of eternal life to all who believe. In order for the gospel to be good news for everyone, everyone who's guilty, everyone who's suffered loss, everyone who has doubted, everyone who has felt shame and suffering and pain, in order for the gospel to really be good news in such a broken world, it needs to have a Savior who would bear all of that suffering and all of that on our behalf. The gospel is not good news for mostly happy people that need a top-up every Sunday. It's far more than that. The gospel is good news for the most broken of us, the most shamed of us, the most suffering, and the ones who live in the shadow of death and who want to see the light. The gospel is good news there. Jesus considered it worth it to obey the Father in this way. Jesus himself suffered what it was like to be sinful in God's eyes, not because he sinned, but because he took our sins from us. There's now no condemnation for those who believe because it was poured out on Jesus. That's where God's wrath went for us as believers. Jesus suffered the physical pains of brokenness and death. He suffered the shame of being mocked by a world that did not understand what he was doing. And even though he went through all that, Jesus despised the shame for the glory that was set before him. When Jesus called a man named Saul, who we also know as Paul, to be his servant, Jesus said, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's the context of Paul's salvation. You are going to find out how much you will suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul counted that suffering worth it. More than worth it. He counted it an honor to share in Christ's suffering. Verse 11, For this message I was appointed, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed. And I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Join in suffering for the sake of the gospel. And then verses 13 and 14, guard the gospel, Timothy. Guard the gospel. I'm going to very quickly mention uh, four, uh, four parts of what it takes to guard the gospel that we find in this passage. And first up is guard the truth of the gospel. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. As we've already mentioned, there is nothing else out there like the gospel. There's so many messages that tell you to try, try harder, um, be better. There's an equal number of messages that tell you, ah, it's okay, just don't worry about it. Those messages don't save. Uh, there is only one message that tells us the way God has met his standards for righteousness in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have before us this morning, there's just two ways, uh, at least two ways that this text makes me think, uh, ways that we can be tempted to compromise on the truth and the content of the gospel. The first one is due to suffering. The goal of most persecution that's aimed at Christians 
the goal is to accomplish that believer to renounce his or her faith, to say, you know what, that isn't true after all, I don't believe it anymore. And I might be wrong in this, but it's my observation that through history, that's not very often successful. There are very few who have really grasped who Jesus is and what he did and what his message was who fall away because of suffering. A false gospel with no sacrifice and all success, oh yeah, suffering will destroy that. That'll that'll sink that boat for sure. But the actual gospel of the cross, suffering is is such a natural part of that What's interesting, though, and, and more than interesting, it's uh, worrisome, is that the, the, the other source of pressure that we're talking about today, shame, seems to claim many more victims in the Christian faith. And this is because maybe many of us fail to grasp who Jesus was and what he did and what his message was from the perspective of shame. Uh, but there's tremendous pressure on Christians today to feel ashamed of the message of Jesus and to clean it up, as it were, to change it into something that's a little bit more palatable and fashionable today. But it's precisely the uniqueness and the sharpness of the gospel that the world needs to hear. So let's not abandon the pattern of sound words, as Paul puts it. There's a book called The Archer and the Arrow, and and in this book, the, the authors at one point are trying to get us to imagine what it would be like if Christians were to actually give in to that pressure to kind of pretty up and leave some parts out and add some parts here to the gospel to make it more marketable. And they ask you to consider the most famous painting in the world, the Mona Lisa. It resides in a custom-built, bulletproofed, climate-controlled case in the Louvre. It's considered to be such exceeding and irreplaceable value that it's only left that building to be exhibited somewhere else twice in the last century. And can you imagine what would have happened if the guys responsible for getting the painting from one place there and back again decided along the way that that painting's not so good after all. You know, it might be more relevant to today's audience if we took a brush and add like a neon border around the outside and maybe maybe like some little speech bubbles in there and if Mona Lisa's hairstyle got updated, like throw some highlights in there just so it's, you know, it resonates more with the modern audience. And the point is that it's not the delivery guy's job to improve upon the painting. Their job is to deliver the priceless and authentic original painting in its original condition. And how much more so, then, is it our duty to protect and deliver the original and priceless gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us? But guarding the gospel involves more than just transmitting the truth of its words. If you look at the rest of verse 13, how was Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words? Follow in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guarding the gospel requires not only that we faithfully keep the words of the gospel, but that we live in faith and love that are a suitable adornment for the gospel. In other words, if you can faithfully repeat the content of the gospel, but you can't share that truth without Christ-like love then it's possible you haven't fully believed the gospel, or the gospel still has some work to do on you. Let the theologically minded among us beware. If your theology has not changed your heart and begun to make you look more like Christ, then your theology is either bad theology or it is not your theology. 
It's not really what you believe. So in order to be fully passed on, the gospel must not only be preached, it must also, in addition, be lived. And that leads us to our next point, that Christ's suffering in the gospel and his call for all to follow him to pick up their cross means that suffering is as much a part of the gospel, so much a part of the gospel, that it can't fully be grasped without suffering being a part of it. If someone hears all about what Christ did for them, but never ever witnesses a Christian who's willing to suffer for Christ's sake, then there's still something, some part of the understanding that has not been transmitted. When the world sees Christians suffer for the sake of Jesus' name, only then is the message of the gospel made complete. It's not that our suffering adds in any way to the atonement made by Christ's blood, but it's always been the way that the willingness and the ability for Christ's servants to suffer has been the most powerful witness to the world for God's sacrificial love to them. I want to encourage you to just think, maybe who in your life has taught you this? Who in your life can you point to and say, there, I've seen someone suffer for the sake of the gospel? Who do you know that's paid a high price for their calling in Christ? Does, does following Jesus cause them to experience regret or joy? Part of the challenge for living for Christ in Canada has been that the minimum default cost has been very low. And I'm going to ask you, is it in your power? This is kind of thinking outside the box, but is, is it in your power to raise how much it costs you to follow Christ? And if you, if you were to find ways to increase what it costs you to follow Christ, would your life be better or worse? Would you obtain more or less of what you truly desire and value? And parents, I, uh, I speak to you uh, myself first among you. What's most important for your children? That they be entertained and comfortable and successful in the world's eyes or that they know Jesus Christ in his death and in the power of his resurrection. What can we do to show them that in our lives? And a good place to start wrapping our heads around this might be to find those believers that you do know have paid a high price. Maybe missionaries, maybe Christians in far-off places, maybe some people who have made a stand here. I'm not saying that none of us suffer for the cause of Christ. All of us do in various ways. But think of someone that you know, that you would say, yeah, there's someone who's done that, and join with them in fellowship. Share in that with them. Learn from them. And finally, guard the gospel in the power of God himself. You know, thanks be to God that he's given his Holy Spirit to guard and keep all that he's entrusted to us. Yes, we are called to be faithful. And it's a good thing that we feel challenged by this passage and by the things in it. But we must never feel overwhelmed by these things. Paul writes in verse 9, Share in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God who saved us and called us. And a little further down, I am not ashamed, even though he suffers, for I know who I have believed, and I'm convinced he is able to guard what's been entrusted to me. And he tells Timothy, uh, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to guard the gospel. Isn't it beautiful that when you normally make a deposit at a bank, who is now in charge of keeping the money safe? The bank. The, the person that you've deposited and put it into. The neat part is with God, when God deposits the gospel and he puts it into our care, he never takes his fingers off of it. Uh, he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us do the task that he's assigned us to. 
So Christian, these tasks of bearing shame and suffering for the gospel are not yours to bear alone. They belong to Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Join in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Guard the gospel. And we're going to leave off with this. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. If you're here today and you have never embraced that salvation that God has made available through the cross, I urge you to come to Jesus, the one who suffered and gave up his perfect life on your behalf. It is not possible for you to remove the burden of your sins by coming to church or doing good deeds. It is not possible for you to overcome the suffering and pain and loss and evil in this broken world through your efforts. Many people read their Bibles and they come to churches and volunteer faithfully week after week and they hear the message over and over, God has saved you from your sins and yet they keep trying to earn their forgiveness. They keep trying to do it until one day God finally helps them see it. God has freely saved you from your sins. God isn't waiting for you to be good enough. Jesus has made you clean by taking your guilt on himself. It is nailed to the cross. It is gone. Many other people come faithfully week after week and they assume that God's grace means they can live however they want to live and not take sin seriously. But it costs God dearly. It was by dying that Jesus defeated death. And to those who would follow him, he says, pick up your cross, come and die to yourself, and by doing that, you will find your life in me. The gospel is not come on Sunday and be, be encouraged to try harder next week. And neither is the gospel everything's okay the way they are. The gospel tells us we are far worse than we would ever have feared even. But at the same time, God continues to love us more than we would ever hope. The challenge to not be ashamed of the gospel and to suffer for the sake of the gospel and to guard it and live by it and pass it on, that's a challenge that only rightly falls on people who have believed it and have been set free. And for those who have believed it, believe it again this morning. If you find yourself thinking, man, I have been ashamed of the gospel, and there are times when I have fallen short of living it out before people, and there are times when I have avoided suffering, then remember that this morning, brothers and sisters, the gospel is there for you all over again. Jesus did not call righteous He called sinners to repentance. Remember that when we are not enough, God's grace is enough. And when we are weak, his strength and his power is shown through us. Remember that you have a loving Father in heaven and a merciful, patient Savior who understands your struggles and is able to make you stand firm in the faith. Remember it's God himself who put his spirit in you and continues to work in you until his work in you is done. I don't know about you, But if the greatest human government imaginable, whatever that would look like, I have no idea, um, if the greatest human government imaginable put up posters that said, just keep calm and carry on in the midst of darkness when all appears lost, I don't think that would be enough for me. In fact, I'm sure it would not be. But when we know the one that we have believed and trusted, when we know that we serve a risen Savior who faced everything we can't and has triumphed over death itself, when I know whom I have believed it and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, that is a different story. 
Because when we stand firm in the gospel and shame and suffering come upon us, it's not ultimately coming upon us. It's not us that the reproach of the world falls, even though it is us, we feel it, but ultimately it falls on God himself, on Jesus, our Savior, and he is able. He is able to bear it. He is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the one and only message that you have kept safe and guarded ever since Christ came to deliver it and came to deliver us in his death on the cross. We thank you that that for centuries, imperfect and weak but faithful believers have been kept strong and have faithfully passed on this message of salvation because you have seen fit to keep that message and to, and to entrust it to them and to keep your hand on that deposit. You have got that message down to us today and we thank you for it. And we pray that you help us respond to it in new ways. Help us open our eyes to see all the ways that we can live for your message and your kingdom and faithfully proclaim it and experience the joy that comes from filling up the sufferings that our Savior suffered on our behalf. Lord, we pray that many will come to know you through this message. We, we expectantly wait for that, and we watch for it, and we give you the glory for all that you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.